0: Welcome to the American Society of Regional Anesthesia, Regional Anesthesia and Pain Podcast, ASRA RAP. I'm your host today, Raj Gupta, and I'm coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, great to join everybody here today. It's been a while since uh, we get on these live streams and get out to talking to you, but uh, I always look forward to it. Um, we are going to be discussing an article today, came out in anesthesiology um, back in... Uh, not that long ago, just last month. And, uh, we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, before I get started, I want to remind you about a couple of things. First off is, um, ASRA is doing a joint, um, conference an online virtual conference, uh, combined with Ezra, the European Society of Regional Anesthesia. And it's going to be next month in September. Um, and you know, here's the best part about this conference. If you're a member of either society, it's completely free, um, 24 hours, nonstop, 24 hours of content, combined effort of um, uh, educators from um, Europe, from the Americas, all over the world. We're going to have an amazing group of people that are participating in this conference. And um, the topics are going to be acute and chronic pain and uh, regional anesthesia. So lots of wonderful material for you guys to dig into. All of that's going to be enduring material as well. And um, that's something that you're going to be able to watch afterwards. But to get the full value, you want to watch it live because you can actually interact with the speakers, ask questions, interact with the community who's watching on social media. So I think it's a fantastic way to stay in touch with this community, especially since all of us are longing for more uh, connection with each other as we're social distancing uh, in each of our respective countries. So, go to the website for ASRA society or for so asra.com or for the European society and find the registration for the uh, September conference and please join us I think it's going to be a great meeting and I think everybody will enjoy it From ASRA's perspective, they have made the decision that we're going to do the fall meeting um, as a virtual meeting as well, the official fall meeting. Um, That's going to be uh, all the details are going to come out in the very near future, including when to uh, submit abstracts. But again, go to ASRA.com to find all that information. Azra is also going to be doing a lot of webinars uh, in the near future. They're already starting some of them. We've been kind of experimenting to see how effective they are, have had very good engagement and enrollment in some of these webinars. So um, again, go back to azra.com, click on all the links that are appropriate, find out what's happening with the society, become a member if you aren't already, and then check your emails because the emails uh, will also have updated information about all these events. So I just want to remind you that, even though we're all longing to be together, even though we wish we could be at conferences together, having a cup of coffee or a drink in the evening, um, we still can stay connected with the content. We can still stay connected with the people. Um, There's lots of new and innovative ways we're gonna do that. And actually, I think this makes this more accessible to a wider audience than we've ever had before. So maybe we'll learn something new in this process. So without further ado, I wanna make sure we get to our, uh, our, our panel today. Uh, we have with us, uh, let me get everybody on here. So we've got uh, Gary Schwartz from New York. Gary, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me again, Raj. Always a pleasure. Yeah, good to have you. And Kathan Chopra. Kathan, have you moved yet, or are you still uh, in Ann Arbor, or where are you now? No,
1: I'm uh, I'm in uh, sort of the downtown Detroit area, but my okay. uh, my practice kind of has me going to a few different places. So, nope, mm-hmm. oh, staying here for now.
0: Still in Michigan. Yeah, absolutely. And, and are, and our guest today to talk about this topic, Sam Nehruz. Sam,
2: how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me again.
0: Where are you hanging out these days? You look very comfortable there in your lounge chair. I'm at home. <laughs>
2: I'm home someday. They um, let you go uh, back to work, though? I'm working. Yeah, we started back uh, after the labor uh, weekend. Oh,
0: Yeah, so it's been uh, busy again. Are you guys at full capacity? Almost. Almost. I yeah. would say
2: 75, maybe. capacity. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Well, Hari wants to say hi to everybody, so I popped him up here on the screen. Hi, Hari. Thanks for watching. Always good to have you. we got to get you on here as a guest here pretty soon, too. Okay, so let me bring up our topic um, before we get any further. So on the screen, you'll see this is the publication in anesthesiology. Uh, It's entitled Ketamine and Magnesium. Hang on. Let me take this thing off so you can read it. Okay. Ketamine and magnesium for refractory neuropathic pain, a randomized double blind crossover trial. Um, This is out of France, um, where they actually did this uh, randomized trial. And they are looking at addressing uh, or partly addressing this question of whether ketamine, IV ketamine, IV magnesium are actually useful in uh, the management of neuropathic chronic pain. So uh, before we get into the details of the article, uh Gaten, I don't know if you want to start with this. Um, tell, me about, uh, uh, your mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about your impressions. You're uh, coming straight out of training. Tell me a little bit about your impressions of ketamine and uh, magnesium in the treatment of chronic pain, and then we'll dive into the study and see uh, wh- where we go from that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you, you know, at the University of Michigan, we we often, you know, use ketamine as a post operative type of pain management uh, modality uh, often we'd have patients who are you know opioid tolerant or uh, who the PCA just wasn't cutting it for and, and we would give them you know one to three days of ketamine post-operatively to sort of wean down some of their PCA requirements um, and, th- and that's the experience that I had with it uh, in terms of training in, in the chronic pain setting I, I think um, University of Michigan is still sort of developing that, that infrastructure uh, I think uh, with with a medication like ketamine that as we learned from the study does not have a lot of. Um, real literature about in terms of, you know, the dosing, how long you should give it, you know, the type of patients you should use it for. Um, infrastructure for this type of medication is more important than anything. And uh, I, I was excited to read this paper because I didn't know a whole lot about using ketamine uh, as a, a uh, medication for uh, chronic pain uh, outside of these sort of perioperative setting. Um, so that's been sort of my experience with it. And now we're sort of delving into more of the chronic pain aspect of it.
0: Yeah, and Sam, we we use it at our hospital, uh, not so much magnesium, but IV ketamine for that acute pain um, purpose, and the authors of this article um, do mention acute pain as a component of uh, its use case and some literature surrounding that. Um, what about chronic pain? What's the conversation occurring in the chronic pain world about these drugs? I mean, from what I'm hearing, there's excitement, there's interest, Um and uh, hope surrounding these as a, uh, as a cure-all for a few different types of chronic uh, conditions.
2: Uh, as you know, I, I don't do uh, acute pain service a lot. So my experience mainly with chronic pain, you can say if there is exacerbations of chronic pain, it's an acute pain. Uh, I personally, I use it a lot in, uh, in my practice, but I use it mainly as an outpatient. Uh, uh, it, I think it has a decent evidence in uh, CRPS, uh, although it's a rare disease. I won't say this to the majority of my patients, but uh, uh, believe it or not, I use it more for intractable uh, headaches, uh, migraine headaches, trigeminal neuralgia, post neuralgia, especially in the face also. Those are intractable pain disorders that usually don't respond well to more conventional treatment. So you can say it's an acute pain. I mean, uh, trigeminal neuralgia, uh, even migraine, my status migranosis, this is at acute pain syndrome. Uh, so I, I believe, uh, if any, it has more role uh, in acute pain or what we call episodic pain. And we can, when we dive in the study, I'll tell you why. In any episodic pain, uh, more than just chronic non-identified pain.
0: And, and so when you're talking about using it for these cases, are you giving it one time or it's a series of treatments? Because you mentioned this is outpatient. So how do you how do you yeah. handle that?
2: Yeah, um, I mean, the protocol that they said, actually, uh, m- maybe the initial dose and then we repeat it. It depends on every patient response. Uh, I don't do daily infusions. I know there is we don't have face to face comparison between those uh, protocols. But I share with you the protocol that I use. Uh, daily infusions, I don't use it. Uh, I use it uh, once a week uh, for maybe three, four times. And usually this is enough to uh, control the flare-up of trigeminal neuralgia, uh, post herpetic neuralgia, uh, or uh, or um, status migranosis. Usually they need only one or two uh, infusions. But definitely... I can't remember, I did only once and that's it. Unless there are side effects or the patient uh, didn't like the experience of the infusion because of the cognitive uh, dysfunction that might happen with ketamine. But uh, even if they failed or they no good response to the first infusion, I would say I would still offer it another time. It's a low key thing if there's no side effects, no significant contraindications, uh, I would do it again. But remember those are intractable neuropathic pain syndrome, whether CRPS or like shingles, transverse myelitis. I remember I had a patient with transverse myelitis, spinal cord injury, nothing helps. Honestly, it was ketamine that gives decent relief. It's not long-lived. I agree. It's short-term. So for the flare-ups, again, for the episodic flare-ups, I think ketamine has a role.
0: So Gary, let, let's talk a little bit about um, what the connection is between ketamine and magnesium. Um, and this, this article dives into it a little bit, but help, help the audience understand kind of why these drugs are talked about in this context of chronic neuropathic pain, where the hope is surrounding them and how those two are connected. The, the main reason people are
3: looking at magnesium and ketamine and I agree with what Samer said before. It shouldn't be as a first-line treatment. These ketamine and magnesium inf- infusions, they're for chronic type of episodic pain that's intractable to all our other standard treatments. So ketamine is an NMDA, and methyl receptor antagonist, and it helps with the central sensitization of pain, which is why it's been shown to be useful even in the short term with the trigeminal neuralgia, some sort of cancer pains, these episodic headaches. And magnesium, similarly, but in a little different receptor, is a physiologic blocker of NDMA, the receptor as well, and it's been shown as well to be effective in some sort of neuropathic pain. That's why they looked at this. And also, both of these medications have a long history of safety, efficacy, and also they're cost-effective. They're not that expensive. It's not a brand-new drug that's costing thousands of dollars through the FDA. We already have them at our disposal. They're easy to give in an in an infusion, in a controlled setting, and they're safe in that regard as an outpatient or an inpatient.
0: Kathan, I cut you off a second ago. You wanted to add something?
1: Oh, I was just going to ask Dr. Naruse. He talked about, um, you know, using it one time a week. Um, that's sort of how he's been using it. I was just curious to, you know, hear his dosing regimen because in, in the article, they talk about like 0.5 milligrams per kilogram um you know over two hours and sort of off that when in anesthesia we tend to bolus these medications first to um and we're told as trainees it establishes like a therapeutic level um within the bloodstream and then you maintain an infusion. I'm curious um you know what what is your sort of dosing regimen and is there any yeah. thought or any literature in bolusing it initially and then and then continuing infusion
2: there's too many different protocols and I don't think you can say one protocol is better than the other because it, there was really no strong evidence supporting one over the other. But uh, what I use, what they used as the first infusion, uh, 0.5 milligram per kilo, uh, mm-hmm. and actually I infuse it over two hours. Actually, I use exactly this protocol. But beforehand, um, I always give one or two milligram of midazolam. Uh, midazolam, actually, it's another enemy, the air receptor antagonist, but it's more uh, it, it, it blocks the some of the side effects or the cognitive uh, uh, symptom that they don't like this experience. Um, and if the patient had a decent relief, I mean by decent relief, generally, I mean, it has to be, everyone is different. I don't go for numbers. It's the, it breaks the cycle of the status migranosis, but for three days, the headache came back. Then I asked them to come again for uh, uh, five days a week, I'll do the same infusion if they did well. If they did not respond well, I go up to 0, uh, 0.75 milligram per kilo for another two hours. My maximum, I use one milligram, and this usual usually for younger, one milligram per kilo. I don't do it more than three or four. And I mean, um, either it will have maintained relief, or if they don't have relief, then I will stop it. And I think in the recent, if I remember, in the recent um, recommendation by ASRA and the WAPM uh, that Steve Cohen and the whole group did, I is, if I recall correctly, I remember that we kept it at 10 sessions a year. So you have two episodes of those a year, like three, four infusions every three, every week for three, four times. And then if it happened again in a few months, you can do it. Um I remember the other most common protocol is you do it for three or four days in a row. Uh, This is fine. I mean, I did it once because the patient was really bad, vomiting, nauseated from status migranosis. It didn't help at all. So we brought her next day. We do it. So rarely I do it a few days. This is if truly status migranosis, and you could not break the cycle of the headache for the first infusion. But more commonly for uh, neuropathic pain and uh, and the more less urgent uh neuropathic pain syndromes i do it once a week two or three times sometimes four. uh but um, i mean we're going to talk later about the design of the study and stuff mm-hmm. actually it's a very well, study, honestly.
0: yeah let's let's talk about that a little bit let me describe this uh study design here let me see if i can pull it back up So um, in this study, what they did is they recruited their goal was to um, based on their power analysis to have 20 people um, enrolled or 18 is actually what they wanted for their power analysis. And they got 20 allocated and they did this as a crossover study. So they were randomized to receive um, either placebo ketamine or ketamine with magnesium. Um and what they did is this this was separated by uh roughly what 35 days if I remember right. Yeah. Um about a, yeah, 35 days. And so each time they came in, they were randomized to allocate to one of those treatments. And obviously if they received it once, then the next time they received one of the other two, the next time they received the third medication. And then each time um they were doing a diary assessment of their pain scores their peak pain uh each day or or maximum pain intensity each day and then when they actually came in for the visits they would go through a battery of uh surveys about their mood about their overall pain experience um and i think they also kept a diary of how much pain medication they were taking uh as well during this and they followed these people um for uh different time increments after each treatment trying to see if they could elucidate a difference in effect um based on the treatment that they got each time interestingly i thought it was funny that they also informally asked the people if they knew which drug they got each time and um uh, i think they were it was like 50 50 They, they couldn't always tell um which medication they got so that's the core of the study design um, anything you guys want to add to the study design here before we talk about the uh, what they actually saw as outcomes? I think that's the basic thing. And these are patients who had neuropathic pain. Um, these are patients who were ketamine naive. So they did not include anybody who had uh, received ketamine as treatments in the past. Um, they also had other um, exclusion criteria uh, based on their medications or medical history to make sure they didn't have a reaction to the... Um, um, or uh, a risk of a reaction to the ketamine or magnesium. Um, the source of neuropathic pain for these patients were either surgery, radiculopathy, trauma, diabetes, uh, chemotherapy. And um, like I said, they did a power analysis to determine an effect of a difference of 35% reduction in pain and uh, got a sample size of 18 and they enrolled 20 for the study. Half of them male, half of them female. I think that gets to the core of the study, um, population. They had a few people excluded. Um, two people didn't meet the inclusion criteria. One person from their original sample, uh, declined to participate. So that gets us to the, um, results. Um, Okay, then you want to talk a little bit about the results that they found here? I'm going to try to pull up the graph.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the the, the primary endpoint was uh, essentially assessing pain intensity um, between the three groups over a 35 day study period. And there, um, in this study, that they found that there was no statistically significant difference uh, between the three groups out of um, after 35 days. Um, so this includes, you know, the ketamine group. This is the ketamine and magnesium group. Um, they even went so far as to include groups that got ketamine and then ketamine magnesium right after so even that sort of additive effect that we might think might happen um, did not uh in this study and a few of the other secondary endpoints they were looking for were, you know maximum pain intensity uh pain intensity at night uh pain at 14 15 21 and 28 days um there was no, also no statistically significant difference as well uh, the one thing that did, they did find was at seven days um there was a a difference in the in the ketamine group, I believe, in terms of um, statistically significant decrease in pain, which sort of speaks back to the the concept of using it in the in the acute pain setting um so that that's sort of what I got um from the results from this paper. Obviously, the sample size was you know quite quite low uh, um but that that's essentially a summary of what they found uh, in their study.
0: Gary, anything to add about the results or Sam, either of you? Well Kaiton had a
3: good overview of it. I think the biggest thing that it shows and someone just chimed in it just with the result it was one, it's very neuropathic different conditions that they looked at, but the benefit, I think, as Samur said earlier in his in his practice, he brings people normally back within a week or two. The thirty-five day difference is a long time to bring a patient back between infusions. And as it's shown in the past, it seems to work better for episodic or acute issues. So I wish someone studied that if you you follow them up, bringing back more frequent infusions, or if they did not respond, like as most of us do in our practice, if you don't respond to the first dose without side effects, you'll normally give someone a second run with a little bit of a higher dose, which they unfortunately didn't do in this study.
0: Mm -hmm. Sam, any thoughts about the results that Kaythan presented so far?
2: Yes, uh, I'd like to make a comment about the... uh, uh, the sample size, I mean, I had a question here or a comment that the sample size was low. They claimed that they calculated the sample size depending on a pilot study that they did before, and they looked at the pain, the area under the curve, and they looked at a couple of studies for CRPS. So I think they did their due diligence to to come up with a, a good power for this. Um, um, my concern is the diversity of the neuropathic pain syndromes that we mm-hmm. get. Uh, and that's why I want to come out from this session with the concept episodic pain. Episodic pain. Uh, they include a patient with diabetic neuropathy. I mean, you have a patient with diabetic neuropathy for 20 years. Do you really expect that giving him a ketamine dose will fix him for five weeks? I mean, come on, you will take a Nobel Prize for this. No, you need a neuropathic pain with uh, peaks and troughs, flare-ups. You have a history of... Uh, Again, that's why my perfect examples would be trigeminal neuralgia. It comes and goes. There is remissions, there is lapses. Uh, neuropathic pain after back surgery. I won't do it unless it's, it's a new onset, uh, like a nerve injury kind during surgery or from prolonged nerve impingement prior to the surgery. They have residual neuropathic pain. So I know that the course should be like two or three months. The failed conserved treatment. I will offer ketamine two or three, four sessions uh, and uh, because I know the duration of the illness. But chronic uh, neuropathic pain like diabetic neuropathy, honestly, uh, I don't see this. Uh, I mean, you did not fix or treat the cause of the pain. You are just giving a pain medication with a short half-life and you are waiting five weeks to see a response. So I think the patient selection group was not the best. That's why our strongest... Um, level of evidence, I would say CRPS, and then next to it will be uh, maybe uh, migraine, uh, episodic chronic migraines. So patient selection is something. The follow-up, uh, actually I called the French, another French uh, group there. This group, are really good group, by the way. They are very good scientists and clinicians, and apparently in France, they use IV ketamine a lot for chronic neuropathic pain. That's why they were charged to look at it. And they said their next project is doing different protocols for different infusion in 500 plus patients. So we'll have good answers. But uh, uh, following it for five weeks, I I, I mean, I'm not surprised that there was no uh, evidence. However, as I said before, when they looked at seven days, there was statistically significant one difference. And this is what we see clinically. And I'm sure if they looked at two or three days or four days, it will be better. So this is the indication. You put in your mind, you have someone with three, four days of headache. You want to upload this headache, you do it. Because what's the other option? They will go to the ER. What are they going to do in in the ER? High copay. They're going to give them infusion. They're going to give them five tablets of Vicodin, sorry, hydrocodone or oxycodone and go home. And they're not going to fix the issue so i think it has a rule in selected patients with with knowing that uh short-lived uh weak do we have a cumulative effect this is a whole kind of worms we can talk about it later if there is a cumulative effect from repeated or not they looked at it they found 12 out of the 20 patients they got randomized to two ketamine infusions in a row Uh, definitely one was ketamine and the other was ketamine plus magnesium, or vice versa. So it's only 12 out of the 20. They were lucky to get those in a row. But again, this two in a row means five weeks. And they didn't find any difference then if they got placebo in the middle. So ketamine, five weeks placebo, five weeks ketamine. They didn't find a difference. Definitely ketamine won't be uh, uh, effective for five weeks or even in the blood or the brain in five weeks. So I will say they did a decent study studying this specific protocol, whether we agree or not about the protocol. But again, it's randomized, double-blinded, triple-crossover. They studied the uh, number to include zero dropouts. This is great, 100% follow-up of the patient. Honestly, you cannot ask for more uh, for this particular protocol. So I think the next study should be repeated uh, injections and, and, and will have better answers, clinically relevant answers.
0: One of the questions James Kim puts up here is he said, regarding episodic pain, would you consider patients with sickle cell crisis good candidates for ketamine infusions during admission? So th- that's more of an acute pain question, but sort of an episodic pain for some, some sickle cell patients who have chronic pain conditions and are yeah. chronically taking uh, opioids or other pain medications?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, there is a theoretical concern about vasoconstriction. Uh, I don't think it's really valid. I think controlling the pain will cause more sympathetic surge than, than ketamine. So blocking the pain will relieve uh, lots of the sympathetic tone. Uh, I would say ketamine is a great option, definitely hand-in-hand hand with IV hydration. And I'm aware of a few ERs uh, ER physician, this is part of the protocol mm. for um, sickle cell crisis.
0: Hey, Gary, you, you do acute and chronic pain. Have you run into this situation where you have a sickle cell patient come in with a crisis and you've used things like this, magnesium, ketamine, any of these drugs?
3: Not magnesium. Ketamine very rarely if they get admitted and they do not uh, respond to conservative treatments. Um, in our current hospital where I'm working now, we don't have a large sickle cell population mm. that comes in through the ER. Our biggest issue in our hospital is that we can only give the ketamine infusions in step-down or ICU and the emergency room. So for the few cases we've had to use it, we've kept them in the ER because they did not mandate an ICU or step-down admission, which makes it a little bit tricky in my institution. But it did help that patient a lot. And I agree with Sammer. I think the vasoconstriction is more theoretical. I think not controlling the pain and not hydrating the patient is the worst uh, situation for these patients, because the faster you hydrate them, the faster you control their pain, the faster they go back to their lives. The more difficult patient is some of these sickle cell patients come in on chronic opiates that get up titrated each Mm -hmm. admission, and now they have a crisis. So that's some of the most beneficial patients that we've used in the past that have seen results.
0: Mainly for a reduced opioid escalation um, as as an adjunct at that point, huh? and pain and and just pain control it's very pain hard control. if someone's on a a few hundred milligrams
3: of OxyContin coming in the ER and now they have a sickle cell crisis which is yeah. a known painful condition it's really hard to treat that
0: yeah i've had many of those patients over the years we don't our hemonc service now is actually handling most of that but i don't think they've gotten to the point of Um, moving towards ketamine, uh, I know they started trying lidocaine, actually, infusions on those patients. I don't know what success they've had with that, but there was some conversations uh, a couple of years back about including ketamine. Um, This was in the process of trying to get ketamine approved for more floor use, um, which we've made progress on since then. Uh, Gaithan, at at Michigan, I don't remember when I was a resident there taking care of any, very many sickle cell patients. I don't know if they've had an increase. Um, during your fellowship there. Do you remember taking care of sickle cell patients? There?
1: We, we got a few. Um, it, it wasn't uh, like a plentiful uh, patient population for the acute pain service, but we did get a few. Um, and then I, I guess just to sort of be a devil's advocate here, I guess my, my concern with, with that was there were times where we would have patients who came to us, um, including sickle cell patients and a lot of chronic pain patients, and they would come to us and just say, you know, I'm here. For ketamine, and oftentimes that would put mm-hmm. us in a pretty challenging situation because, it, it, I'm speaking back to what I said before, infrastructure is so important, right? So I'm talking about acute pain; it's a little off topic, but you know, we, the way our service worked is we had you know an acute pain nurse that was on 24 hours a day, and we're extremely lucky to have that, um, and not a lot, a lot of institutions do. And they would manage not only all of you know the epidurals and nerve catheters, but also the ketamine patients as well. And, and a patient who's on ketamine, it's it, can change pretty quickly you know if they start having hallucinations and side effects things like that um they they do need people um, to be able to respond to that pretty quickly especially if one of the physicians is not nearby or in-house um so uh, sort of get off off topic there not a lot of sickle cell patients but we uh, selection protocol is very important you know we didn't just kind of hand it out because you know i'll be honest there were times where i was on a call you know over the weekend i would get a call at 3 a.m from the nurse saying hey this patient's here they said they want ketamine and I'm not trying to be a cynic or anything like that, but you just need to have a really strong protocol in place and a selection criteria, because otherwise it, it, the thing that Dr. Neroz mentioned um, that's very eye-opening to me is this is a very episodic thing. It, it's not a magic bullet. Like you can't just have chronic pain and you just give someone ketamine and, and that's how it is. Um, but so I think that's the one thing that was great about U of M was we were very selective with who we, who we gave it to. And I think that's important for any institution or um, uh, you know, protocol moving forward.
0: So Claire Lobo uh, from Portugal is saying in her clinical practice, ketamine is one of her silver bullet drugs for difficult cases of pain control, either acute or chronic. So again, uh, g- reinforcing that episodic nature that um, we've been talking about over and over. Um, and, you know, I, it hadn't occurred to me until you just mentioned the the people saying I'm here for ketamine. Um, Sam, have you noticed, um, you know, we, we've historically, um, had a problem as we've looked backwards in time with the, this quote-unquote pill mills with opioids when we had oxycodone and oxycontin come online. And you had clinics where people were just saying, yeah, I have some sort of pain and now you're getting prescriptions. Are we at risk of that with IV ketamine infusions where we turn into places where people just say they have pain just so they can get the high from ketamine? Although I don't think these doses are quite that impressive for no. creating that effect.
2: I don't think it's a problem with IV ketamine infusions because it has to be in an uh, ER setting, uh, uh, IV infusion center. Uh, I would be more concerned uh, actually about nasal route of administration mm. of ketamine. Uh, but uh, um, it, it, there is always a concern. There is always a concern, and uh, we need to monitor the patients. But for, for our scope of practice here, because we don't do it for depression, uh, the IV infusion, I think it's a low key because you control it. They come only uh, one, three, four times, and it, it, they won't have access to it. Um, uh, since we mentioned depression, honestly, uh, I, I totally get it for depression because I hear it a lot from the patients that uh, it helps. Uh, the patient they know their body much better than anyone else. Yeah, and we always only focus. Oh, how is your headache? What's the number? How many days? Uh, a week how many hours for each headache Uh, how uh, did it respond to triptan one they always say it helps why actually it helps more with the experience of the pain rather than pain score so because it helps with the uh, psychological component of pain depression here also they looked at those anxiety depression sleep but again they looked at five weeks from one dose Actually, the protocol for depression, it's more standardized than our protocol for chronic pain. And it's frequent infusion. It's not and at higher doses, actually. So this is not a protocol meant to target an anxiety, depression. But I think this is a major component of patient with pain, chronic pain, chronic headaches. I just want to make a quick comment because it's interesting when you look at data. You can read it in the way you want to read it. Here, they analyze it as an intent of treat, which is Mm -hmm. perfect. But I can read it in a different way. I can say at day seven, 50% of patients had great pain relief. At five weeks, 25% of the patient had good pain relief. If I made this statement, 50% of patients got great pain relief at seven days, uh, this is not bad because (laughs) we are, I mean, we have... Each patient is different. Each patient has different experience. So if you have a chance, one out of two, honestly, I mean, do you want to deny this to the patient? I mean, we, we, we need to practice patient-centered care. So you have a tool in your hand that can uh, fix one out of those two patients. Would you offer it to both patients? I would. I mean, for the FDA to approve uh, new migraine medications, they need 30% relief. Hmm from every dose. And you don't give one trip 10 and you said, oh, I cured your migraine. No. So uh, 50% relief on day seven, actually, it's not bad. What I learned from this is placebo is true, because 20% of the patient had pain relief in the first uh, week, and actually 15% at week five, 35 days. So actually, this confirmed what we see clinically, honestly, that we do it for a few days in a row, or we do it every five days or every week, two to three times, depending on the condition. Uh, And you need to repeat it, definitely. My other point was magnesium. I was kind of surprised. I don't know if you guys use magnesium for acute pain, but I'm a headache specialist. That's why I always think uh, I get deviated about headache. Actually, magnesium is for prevention. Magnesium is more for migraine prevention. And actually, Hmm. this is one of the best evidence. Uh, It's level B. Um, yeah, especially with migraine with aura, uh, because it blocks the um, the cortical uh, spreading depression that is responsible for aura. So I, I don't think it's magnesium. It, it definitely has acute, it has studied an acute migraine, but it does not have the same evidence like chronic migraine. Um, combining them with ketamine was really new to me. I mean, it didn't add much, but uh, uh, we use magnesium. Uh, mainly uh, orally for chronic migraine prevention. Uh, Sometimes IV definitely part of the migraine cocktail for status migranosis, yes. But uh, it has more evidence for chronic migraine prevention.
0: Before we go continue a little bit more on magnesium here, Um, there's a comment, uh, Gordon, you make a comment about some of your experience about, it sounds like ketamine infusions, in Canada. Um, if you're still listening, I, I would love to get a little bit more detail about what you're referring to. I didn't quite understand your comment. said that it's a major issue in Canada, but partly because of how their medical system works. Um, if you have a little bit more detail, I would love to um, hear more about that, if you can type that up and put that in there. Um, I, You know, I, I think the magnesium question, I, I don't use it much in acute pain. I know it's been talked about a lot in acute pain as one of the newer multimodal, uh, adjuncts. Um, and, uh, we have never really gotten into it, but the context of it being an NMDA interactive medication for, um, patients who have acute on chronic pain, I think that's where this comes up in this situation. Gary and Caitlin, let me start with Gary first. Uh, what, what, what context have you used magnesium in, in this, uh, for pain? Just very rarely, like uh, Sam says, he it more than me because he
3: treats a lot more headache than I do. But for the chronic migraine patient, it seems to be beneficial. I would like to see like a study for these chronic neuropathic pains, obviously taking out the diabetic neuropathy type of patient and the 20-year back pain neuropathic, like an oral magnesium study with weekly ketamine for these episodic episodes and see how that does. I would like to see that treatment because numerous studies have shown, as Sam pointed out before like at seven days, 50% relief for 50% of the patients in a neuropathic pain state to get relieved is pretty impressive in clinical practice. And as, and as he stated before, like a, a one-time magnesium dose, I don't think it's going to do much for these chronic states, but for an everyday oral dose, which is still very cost-effective in addition to the weekly IV, I'd like to see how that played out in the future, if someone would study that.
0: So researchers, there's an idea. <laughs> okay how about you guys did you guys ever use magnesium much or do you
1: not not particularly um you know as a resident sometimes i would just uh you know we we had a a thoracic surgeon who for whatever reason during his thoracotomies didn't use epidurals you know for whatever reason and and oftentimes i would run ketamine and magnesium uh, for for post-operative pain control uh throughout those cases so that's super anecdotal not studied you know things like that but that's really the only uh experience that i had with it from a chronic pain perspective um, you know, sometimes you'll get patients who are on a, a good amount of, you know, opioids as we all do, and I sort of use magnesium as a way to um, stimulate gastric motility. In that sense, it's not really help. I don't know if it's helping with their pain as much, but if you do have patients who are on um, high dose opioids, that you can kind of use magnesium in a twofold. You can say, you know, it does help with NMDA um, antagonism. Whether that's going to help, you know, someone who's on a high dose of opioids, I'm not really sure, but it, it it can help a little bit with the with the side effects of the medication. So those are really my only two uses of it. We don't, we never at U of M use it as an infusion or anything, anything, you know, intra-op or, or post-op or anything like
0: that. So uh, Dr. Uh, Britta Nun Singh in uh, Singapore says that uh, he's converted patients. They've converted patients to oral. I'm thinking he means oral ketamine for intractable zoster or cancer um, pain. And it looks like they do a calculation post infusion. So uh, I don't know if we have access to any, do we, in the States, do we have access to an oral ketamine that's uh, readily available, or is that still res- uh, more of an international solution?
2: Uh, I'm not sure if he meant oral ketamine or oral magnesium.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure but, either. Uh,
2: uh, no, we don't have, it's not accessible, but uh, intranasal ketamine, yes. I have yeah. maybe a hand full of patients, uh, uh, intractable cluster headache patient that I prescribe them intranasal ketamine uh, very limited doses, uh, it, it's, it's really, really helpful. But it's very dangerous because it have high risk of uh, 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 drug use disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, but back to magnesium uh, for G- uh, Gary, when he said daily dose, actually ask any headache patient, this is pretty standard. Uh, migraine patient, they have daily migraine, this is part of their life. Over the counter, magnesium oxide very cheap, take it twice a day. Uh, it's a standard. We don't test magnesium level, but it's very well known that magnesium level is low in migraine. We don't test it because, I mean, just a one-minute explanation here. Um, It does not reflect the intracereal level or the brain level of magnesium because magnesium is stored in the bone, you know. So if you want to test it, you test the ionized fraction of the magnesium. This is very expensive, so we don't test it at all we just to give it empirically. And uh, only in research, you do ionized level of magnesium or the magnesium level inside the RPCs. This will give you a good reflection of the magnesium level in the brain. And it's extremely helpful for my- migraine in general, especially migraine with aura. So again, if the daily dose, again, it's for headache headaches patient, they get used to it. I, ne- I didn't think about it to try it daily for patients with neuropathic pain. I- I'm not sure. Maybe I need to look back in the literature. And- Maybe someone done it years ago, but I'm um, I'm not aware. It's a good good point.
0: So, as we wind this down, just to, for the purposes of this uh, conversation on this paper, sounds like these guys have come up with a study design that's a useful design for other follow-up studies to kind of mimic and track patients. It looks like Sam, you're you're indicating that we need to be looking at people's pain in a shorter time frame. Uh, with repeat dosing and not necessarily waiting five weeks between every dose or um or allowing that washout period to go on for five weeks before the next uh medication, but that there is signs of hope here um and it does not necessarily this study does not necessarily say that iv ketamine and iv magnesium are of no use, but rather that there's more detail that needs to be teased out of this. Am I summarizing that um fairly well? Perfect.
2: The last comment, I don't want to sound like I'm a big advocate for uh, ketamine. Uh, usually we call it vitamin K uh, because there is current abuse of using uh, ketamine. I'm not abused like uh, abuse disorder. I mean financially. There is uh, hmm. clinics here and there just for ketamine for wellness, uh, to treat addiction. Um, I, I don't think there is a sound literature supporting this. Uh, what I'm saying it's a short-term doesn't mean that we're going to do it every week for, for good. Uh, we think, um, based on consensus, uh, uh, in the recent guidelines, maximum 5 to 10 infusions a year is reasonable for chronic uh, recurrent uh, pain disorders, but definitely not uh, like IV hydration clinics or IV vitamin clinics uh, that you, you, you just to go walk in and get an infusion and go home. We have to be cautious also.
0: And um, someone, uh, Luc- uh, Lucy Hostetter, asked the question, is anyone looking at uh, esketamine, um in chronic pain conditions? Or I guess acute or chronic. I, I haven't used this drug.
2: I, I don't have experience with that.
0: Anybody know anything about that? So that may be part of a future discussion if we I find more literature it, on that.
2: It's difficult to get it clinically because... It's not FDA approved for the indication. It's still difficult mm-hmm. to get IV ketamine infusion for, for pain patients. Do you get this difficulty, Gary? Yeah, I mean, again, it, it gets denied, denied and we get denied we get
3: denied all the time. Some of my patients yeah. that need it, they just end up paying cash, and we try to make it an affordable option because they're suffering so much because the insurances don't cover it. The majority of the time, every once in a while, we'll write letter after letter after letter, mm-hmm. and they'll approve. But by that point, their episodic issue is done.
2: Yeah, that's so why them- we, when the patient responded well, usually we try to get preauthorization for the next one. Usually they give us like six months use and we keep it in in the chart till we need it again, because this is exactly a very clinical uh, uh, issue that when you need it, you have to wait for preauthorization, and then it's over.
3: Yeah. That's why you see these hmm. clinics opening up because it's a, it's a fi- potential financial windfall for them. They don't have to wait. The patient just come in. They're not doing it through the insurance, their wellness clinics and Correct. ketamine in, in clinics for their, their pain, depression. And it does have use in depression too, but that's out of the scope of the practice of this no. show.
2: No, I mean, yeah. they help the patients. I'm not saying anything. It's just, yeah. you have to be careful not overusing it and generalizing it to the everyone with depression or everyone with any pain disorder. Uh, it's always, we have to be very selective still. It's a, it's a potent drug. It's, uh, we use it off-label, so we have to be careful with our patient selection.
0: Personalized care. Yeah, exactly. So I'll just uh, put up the article name again and the date um, for everybody. Um, if you're interested in going and seeing this article, I think it was a good uh, – like I said, I'm, I'm mostly fascinated by their study design. I thought that was a really well-executed study design. Um, I would have liked to see a, a larger population, although their power analysis – um, does indicate that their results are meaningful. Um, we could we could argue about the par- power analysis ad nauseum if we wanted to. But um, it, it's a good, st- well-done study, I think, and um, provides some information about what maybe these drugs are not good for. doesn't mean they're not good for anything at all. Um, just as we wrap up, I want to thank all of you guys for joining on a Sunday evening. I uh, appreciate it. And uh, just as a reminder, go to azra.com. Find out all the information about upcoming uh, webinars, upcoming virtual conferences. There's actually uh, in this time period of quiet, uh, solitary reflection, there's actually quite a lot going on. And I think the organization is stepping up to the difficult times that we're dealing with just so we can continue to be educated and learn from each other and uh, and and get to interact uh, so that we maintain our relationships. But Always good to talk to all of you, and uh, I really appreciate you joining.
2: Same here. Thank you.
0: Have a good week, guys. Thank you. You guys have a good week. Bye.